ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. AI images. I knew they were trouble when they walked in. And so did Taylor Swift. Yes, this week on Download This Show, horrific deepfake images of the pop star Taylor Swift have flooded the internet and now politicians are calling for better regulation. But will that be enough? Also on the show, the live streaming service Twitch, beloved of gamers all around the world, is making a huge change to how it pays people. And exactly what role should AI have in Australian schools? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and a very big thank you. Wow, that's even more game show than I normally go. (laughs) Um, And you get a claim. Please, welcome down the aisle. (laughs) The first voice you're hearing, apart from my deeply professional tones, is Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, our future economies reporter with the AAP. Welcome to Download This Show. Thank you. So good to be here. Jazz hands. And uh, from UniSC, the University of the Sunshine Coast, computer sciences lecturer, and what was that other term you came up for yourself, Erica Mealy? Miniature nerd herder. Miniature nerd herder. Erica Mealy, welcome to download this show. Thanks for having me. And for all of my students, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with something that is actually fairly serious. US politicians have called for new laws to criminalise the creation of deep fake images. It comes after a swathe of explicit fake photos of the pop star Taylor Swift were viewed millions of times online. Jen, exactly... What has happened here? What what exactly are the US politicians asking for? So they're asking for restrictions on on what's basically AI-generated porn. Apparently these images were created by a group of charming individuals who gather on on Telegram and they're kind of dedicated to creating abusive and offensive deepfake images of women. And these were created using generative AI. So they weren't even kind of the the fake, you know, celebrity porn of old where you'd have, you know, a face crudely, you know, stuck onto the body of somebody else. It's not clear what tool they actually did use to create it, but some people have said that they've used, uh, this particular group has used like Microsoft generative AI in the past. So I, I think what the US regulators are talking about is simply restricting that because that is not a great standard to set and it's horrible that it happened to Taylor Swift but honestly if it happened to anybody else I don't know if we would have seen the same outrage like there's nothing Taylor can't do apparently she can win the the Super Bowl and she can re-release all of her songs and she can fight the worst example of AI that we've seen or at least one of the worst examples of of AI used badly that we've seen and so it's it's really good to see that it's created this kind of outrage because maybe we'll actually get some action on it, even though, sorry, Taylor, terrible experience. Hope it never happens again. What can politicians actually do here? I, I understand the underlying principle of why they're asking for changes, but are there actual changes in law that could pre- have prevented this from happening in the first place, Erica? Look, that's a really hard one because part of the problem with this legislation is how do we police it? And particularly with the global context of some of these groups that are operating. I mean, we saw recently in Australia, we've been able to actually sanction the Russian hacker that was named as part of Medibank. But that's the exception and not the rule generally in the global landscape. So while it's a great first step, it requires the entire world really to get behind it. And I think it's a a really big challenge. But if we can get the locations and the jurisdictions where these companies operate 
under these laws, I think that's a good step. So if it is a Microsoft-enabled sort of attack in this context, then if we can get Microsoft on board, that's a good first start. Uh, but I think the, the challenge really is that it's so enormous. It's so huge. And they're talking about one of the photos being shared 47 million times. And the, the stats are something like 99% of these types of attacks are, and deep fake attacks are targeted at women. So it, it's really quite a, an appalling statistic. Is it one of those things where it's going to require mul- uh, kind of a multiplicity of different approaches? Obviously, our literacy, our ability to read and this trust images is going to change. Are there are there other strategies, I guess, in addition to legal strategies that can be employed here, Jen? Yeah, well, what Erica was talking about, about sort of getting Microsoft on board is really important because there, there are actually sort of, you know, guardrails built into some of these programs. Again, charming group of individuals was trying to get around those. So as I understand it, they used a different series of words because otherwise, you know, Microsoft or, or whatever company was employed here had actually put in some restraints around, you know, you cannot type in you know, a regular hot person who we all know and plus pornography. Like it, it had to be more subtle than that. So I think that these companies do have a responsibility to go through and put in as many restrictions as they possibly can when it comes to, you know, researching this sort of stuff. That's not to say that, you know, maybe, you know, creating deep fake images of Taylor Swift with cats is a is a bad idea because maybe that doesn't actually hurt anybody. But there needs to be some, some pretty strict restrictions around how that sort of stuff is employed. X, which I'm just going to keep calling Twitter, because X is a terrible <laughs> name for thing. They have blocked searches for Taylor Swift. Is that a great strategy? Well, it's it's the home of free speech, limiting speech. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, I shouldn't be excited about a serious story, but I am really genuinely pleased that they've taken this step because X has become or Twitter has become a bit synonymous with the toilet of the internet since all the guardrails, they fired all the ethical people, they fired all the community standards people. They really took their, yeah, free speech kind of to the extreme. And now not only have they blocked searching for these images, they've blocked searching for her. You cannot search Taylor Swift on there at the moment. And I think that's actually a really good first step. And again, like Jen said, if it wasn't Taylor Swift, would the same thing have happened? If it were Kamala Harris or one of the Democrats, would we have the same kind of reaction? I don't know. But as far as future harm protection goes, I think it's a great first step. But shocking that it's come from Twitter. Just one thing on that. I think Taylor Swift doesn't have a problem with publicity, right? In the sense that like everybody, you know, she's the biggest pop star in the world and she's got sellout tours. And so, you know, not being able to search her name on Twitter is unlikely to have too much material impact on her cultural or financial well-being, right? Another artist, for example, who maybe is in the ascendancy, who actually needs the internet and searchability to support themselves, the idea of removing their name entirely whilst effectively quite a, a good technique for dealing with this particular issue, could also have unintended consequences on, on other parts of their career, like articles written about them and things like that. There is an interpretation of this that it's a bit of a sledgehammer and, and maybe it's not the best strategy for dealing with this one very particular heinous problem. Is there, Do you have any sympathy for that argument? I just think that this is such a blunt instrument and it kind of shows to me that Twitter sacked so many of its moderation staff that it just didn't have any option and that was how it was going to shut it down. This was being shared millions of times across its platform. It was trending. It was becoming known for it. This is They, they tried to turn off the tap essentially and this is how they did it. 
And if you have a look now, you can still search for Swift. You can search for Swift AI. But Taylor Swift's fans got into the fray. And so they started spamming the internet with and spamming X or Twitter, as, as the old folks call it, with various photos of, of her fully clothed and actual, you know, human photos of her. And so, um, and I believe with the, the hashtag, you know, protect Taylor Swift, because people had to scroll through so many different posts to actually see this stuff in the first place. And so they did a, probably a better job than Twitter, which is quite funny. And, and now you've got kind of opportunistic people going in there and pretending that they've got, you know, the AI photos so that, you know, people will will click on, on their, their tweets and potentially raise money. I, I don't think that Twitter handled this particularly well, but at least they took some action. If this happens again with somebody else, I don't think we're going to see a great outcome. I think the other thing as well is that it's very telling about how fragile these AI technologies are. Like, yes, there should be guardrails that stopped this and they've got around them. And there's been articles uh, that have just come out recently as well about anthropic AI, which is another big AI, and it actually got poisoned and they couldn't reset it. So there was a data poisoning attack that actually put rogue data into it and there was no way to recover from that. So there's these big platforms are subject to it and then the technology is just plain in the hands of these hackers as well. So I think whatever we do, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. But I, I still cannot come up with a justifiable reason to ever create a deepfake. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson from AAP and Dr. Erica Mealy from UniSC. If you are a gamer, you'll be familiar with the concept of Twitch. It is a streaming site where you can sit and watch people play games massively, massively popular. Twitch has announced plans to share more of its revenues with creators as part of a shake-up. Erica, what's happening? So traditionally, uh, you had to get over a number of paid subscribers before you could get a share of the money. And it was then a 50-50 split. But interestingly, now they've lowered that threshold for when you get the money and they've increased it to 60% of the money which is kind of interesting because they're actually still saying they're not viable as an organisation, as a business. But yeah, so the idea is that more of the money is going to the creators, which I think is actually a really great precedent to set. Last year, we saw Reddit just about ruin itself by trying to set APIs and not listen to its community. And so I think this, you know, starting the year out strong from Twitch going, actually, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for our community. So let's try and put more money back in their hands. But uh, I have to say, never watched a Twitch stream. Can't actually imagine sitting there watching someone else play a video game because oh. I've tried to watch my kids. It drives me mental when they press the wrong button. <laughs> but it's probably worth pointing out that it is Twitch is sort of, I guess, in my mind, it's the iconic of the game streamers, but it's not alone. It is a pretty competitive market that they're operating in at the moment, isn't it, Jan? It is. And I love to see it because this means that, you know, potentially creators can earn more money from this. I mean, this is this is what's bringing in the revenue at all. And so it's, it's kind of nice to see them compete with one another. My kid, now we're going into like the family histories. He, he's <laughs> basically... just become a parent in show. <laughs> <laughs> he has drained YouTube. I think he might actually get to the end of YouTube at some point. Like he's just going to run out. We've just been through school holidays. It's <laughs> the end of the summer school holidays. There's no more internet to be watched. That's it. Sorry, kid. You're going to have to start all over. It, it's really nice to see Twitch sort of having to having to compete in this way. And so they're competing with the likes of like very new platforms like Kick, which, you know, are saying that they're going to pay 95% of their revenue that they get to the content creators, which is kind of epic and one way to certainly get people involved. 
And then there's our good old friend X, which we all know as Twitter because we're old. Elon Musk, uh, who, who you may have heard of, he has <laughs> promised a lot more revenue sort of sharing with, with different people because he needs to actually get people to use the platform like the way they used to before he came along. He recently had a bit of a coup and he kind of challenged Mr. Beast, who uh, you guys may know, especially if you're a 10-year-old boy who's watched all of the internet. And he convinced Mr. Beast to actually put one of his videos on X. Now, apparently he made about 250000 US dollars from that, which I would see as a good month on Twitter. But apparently that's not as much as he would normally make on YouTube. And the video, like it was, it, it's very much epic in scale. Mr. Beast, if you're not aware of him, is very much like a big pranks, throw all the money at things, blow things up kind of guy. Like an in, is internet personality who's really crossed over majorly. Like you, you can, you know, a really interesting example of somebody that's sort of taken internet fame and turned it into something that's like quite multi-platform. Oh, absolutely. So he has a whole range of spin-out options and at the same time, like, you know, his videos, I, I think he's he's not quite the most subscribed YouTube person. He's, he's like one below like an Indian channel, but pours millions of dollars into these videos for, you know, you know, 10 minutes of monetizable footage, which is crazy. So $250,000 from him, from X, wasn't actually sort of, you know, what he would normally expect to make from a video and what he, you know, he couldn't use all of that to make another video because they do such outlandish, ridiculous things. But it is nice to see all of the platforms kind of compete for content creators and maybe we can see more cars blown up as a result. Specifically in the in the realm of, of video game streaming, and I, and I do know that Twitch does more than that, how competitive has that particular space become? I think it is competitive. I think there's different sort of run-throughs on the different kind of platforms. I think that Twitch is, has really made a name for itself as part of that live streaming game community. It's interesting to me that they don't make money as a result, um, especially because they really are the leader in that space. However, there are a growing number of competitors. And, you know, when you look at the massive number of you know, eyeballs that, that YouTube actually attracts, it could be very easy for them to spin off into this, this sort of realm and, you know, have, have Twitch's main audience threatened as a result. And so they really do need to, to keep up with that and also to keep up with the new players who are coming out and, and really being aggressive about the way that they recruit new streamers. How viable is game streaming as a career? Like, obviously, lots of people do it. Do we know how many people, like, do it for a full-time job? Because there's obviously a thick swathe of people that do it as, as recreationally. A lot of content creators operate in that space. But is it is how many people can, can actually do it? I don't know. I think if you ask 10-year-old boys, that's all what they want to be when they grow up. Literally, if... the reason I ask is because, you know, for book week, my son was like, <laughs> he dressed up as a YouTuber. That's not a book. Sorry. This was his <laughs> argument. There are books about how to be a game streamer and therefore I will dress up as a Minecraft character. You know what? Just for both my own curiosity as a parent and also uh, because this is a technology, a many award-winning technology show. <laughs> I'd be curious to know how viable game streaming is as a career. There, I got there at the end. I think it's really a great side hustle, but I think it's the rare one that actually makes it into the Mr. Beast realm. And it's a bit like Instagram influencers and all those kinds of things. And the mummy bloggers of a few years ago, and a lot of people can do a bit of it, but I don't think that even the market could support a large influx of people trying to make it that as their living. It's interesting that that's the job that people are aspiring to now, whereas, you know, oh, I'm going to be a fireman and, and, or a policeman. And, you know, it's in, 
interesting challenge in terms of how we balance that out and how we raise the next generation and what they think technology is going to look like. I think it, it really does change and it blurs the line between work and pleasure and home time and off time and, and those kinds of things as well. And I, I hope we don't see a generation of technologists who are just like connected 24-7. I too have been to Book Week following our parenting conversation. <laughs> I too have dressed my kid up as, as a YouTuber. There's a whole series of books called Kid YouTuber. There's a series of books on Minecraft, which Eric is absolutely right. There's a whole generation of kids who thinks they, they can do this. But the number of people who are actually, you know, making 300,000 US dollars a month by sort of creating Twitch streams and the amount of dedication and the burnout rate that they have as a result, like this is not something that you, you know, you spark up your computer on the weekend because your mum lets you. Like you have to be really committed to it. You have to have a regular posting schedule. It's much more than people think. And it's much more rare that people think kids stay in school, go become astronauts. Apologies, this became a support group for <laughs> parents of children. And it's only going to get worse because Australian schools are about to have AI on the curriculum. You will have potentially heard of ChatGPT. It's what's called a large language model, basically. It's not great with facts, but it can write. It is now going to be rolled out as part of the school curriculum. But how? And what is the safe way of that happening? And what is a way in which it's constructive and productive? Walk me through the government framework that's been laid out, Erica. Well, I think the idea is that we want to use it for what it's good for and stay away from things that it's bad at. And uh, I can tell you it is very bad at math. Don't ask it math questions. Or, it's a or, language or fact, model. Or fact questions. Not, yeah, and that's the problem. And it's a little bit of garbage in, garbage out, yeah. um, for, for want of a better term. And that's the same thing we we're talking about with that uh, anthropic AI poisoning. What comes in goes out. And it's getting to a point now with the live language models that they're actually training on stuff that's been generated by other AI, which may or may not have been right. So then it's training. Its own data is not right. And we get into this sort of circle. The thing it is good at, and the thing that I'm really excited about, is it's pretty good with spelling, but being able to construct a good sentence and communicate your thoughts. I think there's ways that it can help us. And if it can lift some of that burden and allow us to dive into the real topics and the real planning and strategy and problem solving... That, I hope, is how we end up uh, dealing with it rather than this blanket ban because the, the blanket ban works so well. I think my daughter's school worked out that they had Bing built into Microsoft Word and Bing built into Windows within about 10 minutes of the ban coming out. So I, I don't think blanket ban is how it's going to work, but it does change how we assess people. Over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, there was a number of knee-jerk panic reactions by by educational institutions at every level. I think there was a, a real sort of communal panic about this technology that could emulate writing so convincingly. And of course, we saw universities freak out about it. In effect, treat it like a tool, right? And recognise as tool's limitations and recognise how it can make people's work better. What are the sorts of things you would have put into this framework? And, and bear in mind, the framework's pretty general that's been laid out. Jen, are there, are there things that you think should be kind of laid out in the framework for how we should interact with the, you know, the, not just ChatGPT, but the next better iterations of it? Yeah, I think teaching kids right up front about the limitations of chat GPT or generative AI in general is really important. And I think that's not just important for kids, but also for adults, because we've become so used to web searches, typing things into Google and getting results and being able to see where those results come from and being able to scrutinize them ourselves. Now, with something like generative AI, we type in a query, but what we get back, we have no idea where it came from. And so I think 
teaching the kids that, you know, not to trust necessarily what they see, not to trust, and, and whether that's, you know, text coming from these programs or, or that's images where there's way too many fingers, like it just can't get the hands right yet. I, I think teaching them the limitations of that. And then I think Jason Clare, the education minister, had pointed this out where it's really important that when we're, we're teaching kids in schools around these programs that we're using programs that don't actually suck down their information. So using the correct kind of programs, putting those privacy controls in place so that little Jimmy's essay on why YouTubers are awesome doesn't just get spat out for the next person who comes along and asks about it. So those sorts of things are really important. And again, this isn't necessarily education that everyone in the community has had. It does become very difficult for parents who have to oversee this kind of thing. So I think it would be nice to have a structure in place. You know, some of these these guardrails in place in schools so that kids can learn in an environment with people who've been trained to teach them about it. Because we've seen a lot of, like, bring your own devices to school where parents are put in charge of, you know, setting up various content controls and, and overseeing what apps the kids are using and the kids then trying to get around those. If you bring ChatGPT in the, into the mix of all of that, parents don't know what's going on necessarily. Not everyone is, you know, hanging around talking about generative AI and hallucinations. So I think it's it's important that there is a, a structure in place and that we kind of, the kids know what's going on and the parents don't have to actually be in control of learning everything about them to teach them that. Yeah, and I think it's really great to see, I know from my institution, we weren't one of the ones that blanket banned it. We were very much a, well, sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And we've approached it, it's a bit like a calculator. So back in the day, you had to calculate it all yourself and you couldn't use a calculator. Even now in the senior exams, there's limits on what kinds of calculators and graphic calculators they're allowed to use. But it's a tool that takes some burden away from us. And, you know, at the same time, it probably has led to a bit of de-skilling. So it means that we aren't as capable at doing those things that the calculator can do for us now. But is that something that we actually, as a, is it a risk to humanity? Maybe not. Spelling, yeah, that's, nah. a different, <laughs> that's a different question. One of the greatest things about our education system in Australia is this ongoing professional development that all of our teachers are exposed to. And I know that we weren't the only ones, but we, our education school actually ran a series about generative AI for PD in 2023. So there's this recognition of teachers that this thing was coming and we needed to at least get to the point of how do we safely allow our students to be able to interact with it. But I think, honestly, my motto for the year is don't believe anything you read online because this, you know, AI deepfakes and misinformation, disinformation, elections, everything that's coming at us at the moment is probably just going to lead to a lot of confusion. So my, my advice, and the same with ChatGPT, is triangulate. If you get something out of ChatGPT, throw it back into Wikipedia, throw it back into Google, look it up in a book. Just on that don't trust anything on the internet thing, we get a lot of our lives through the internet. Are you talking about just a mentality shift where anything you see online you should view with scepticism and then go triangulate or are we just going with a if it's on the internet, don't trust it. <laughs> like, I think we need more nuance to that. Yeah, probably there is more nuance to that. And I mean, if it's a, you know, how long should I cook my boiled egg, then it's not a crucial decision in your life. Like, okay, it might cost you an extra egg if you don't end up making it the way you want. But if you're talking about assessment that is very important, particularly for university and schools and these things like that, then yes, check your sources. Absolutely. So the idea that we're safe from it in Australia is probably not sort of something we can hold on to for long. 
So I think scepticism and critical thinking skills are my two big ones. If if that's what my kids grow up with, those two things, then I will be super happy. And that's the same with my students. If they can think critically and reason about something, it's a starting point. If you start there and then follow the trail with that triangulation, I think that leads to better information. But it's about the, the balance of time investment. Is it necessary? It is an interesting point about the skills that you lose when technology does stuff for you. I was part of a generation uh, of kids that were just not taught grammar in Australia. Me too. And I remember because I've written a few books and I remember my first book published, the publisher's like, yeah, we literally hire a person for all millennial authors because none of you are taught grammar. (laughs) And it occurs to me that uh, the only thing that I really use ChatGPT for is spell check on crack, I call it, <laughs> because it's not, because it deals with grammar and story and sort of sentence structure and all that kind of gear. I have red flags. I have red <laughs> what, flags. What are your red flags? There's two parts to it. And one is, how sure are you that what's coming out the back end is actually what you put in the front end? Oh, because, because it you is... read it again like a grown well, up. <laughs> there's that. That's true. But it is generative AI. So it's taking your input as variables to generate something new. Yeah. So there is the the potential that what comes out isn't what you put in, um, which is probably also the opportunity, right? It's, it's, it's fixed out <laughs> But I think that's that's your responsibility, right? You, I would take a paragraph of something that I've written, then I'd pop it into ChatGPT and just say, can you clean up the spelling and grammar on this? And then you read it back. And occasionally I look at it and go, you just completely added a different meaning to this sentence and so you change it back. And I, I think that the issue is that you can't surrender responsibility to this thing. You can you can use it as a as a tool. It's about as useful as Clippy. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't I think the moment we start surrendering responsibility to it, I feel like that's That's the problem with technology. We tend to see it as this magic box and it's a black box and we don't know what's happening inside. And there's been studies since the 60s about how we treat technology and to the point where there was one that was an air traffic control simulation and the computer put the plane in the wrong place and the air traffic controllers thought that they were wrong and the computer was right. So we tend to give technology this authoritative position in our lives and we just can't. It's not infallible. But the other big red flag is uh, you're giving your IP away, Mark. If you put your writing into there, where is it going? Can you still release it as your work? So I did have this question too because I, I had a look at writing a book last year and, and, and wrote a big draft and there's there's a couple of different companies who will actually, you can upload all of your manuscript and it will go through them and it will compare it to classic works of art. It will spit out a genre for you. And I was like, wow, that sounds really helpful. Where does the information <laughs> go? Say, Please like, <laughs> upload all your stuff to us. We're definitely not uh, learning yes, for it. Exactly. Saving it like, somewhere. Where does the intellectual property go? Where is my book going to show up? Because I wrote that thing out of my brain. I didn't actually, you know, use a prompt and say, write a book because I've got this great idea. And I want to know that when it comes out, I get to put my name on it and not, you know, some random company's name and I can maybe buy myself a copy. Yeah. And the, and the extension of that is the, the new Google Bard assistant that's going to be built in, it's going to be reading your emails. All of them, because it Someone wants to should, be... honestly. I've got so many <laughs> yeah, unread things. Say. <laughs> hey, that'd be great. An mm. automatic email dump button. <laughs> Just to, like a parent sitting in the corner going, 
Now, do you need to say that? <laughs> Is it, please wait and send that email tomorrow when you've cooled down. Does adding a smiley face at the end of the sentence make it any less aggressive? No. <laughs> do you seem a bit grumpy. Do you need a snack? <laughs> Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week, uh, Dr. Erica Mealy from UniSC. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson from AAP. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Download This Show. My name's Mark Fennell. We'll catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.